He's one of the world's most influential people in sales and marketing, a rock star who at one time had a rock band. It doesn't really matter whether your job has sales in the title. If you want to learn more actionable ideas for growing your organization, you're in the right place. We welcome Anthony Inarino to the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in, and thanks for joining us. I'm Jim Carr. Before I introduce our guest, a quick message of thanks. We're off to a very fast start in the podcast, and I'm hearing directly from many of you, as as I would hope. And I appreciate your feedback and ideas and particularly enjoy hearing that you feel this is a great use of your time and attention, that you're getting some new concepts about messaging and management, as well as practical ideas on growing your organization. Please keep it coming. And welcome to those of you who are joining us for the first time. In the spirit of a fresh point of view with practical steps you can follow, it's great to have Anthony Inarino join us. A little background. A few months ago, I was speaking with a client and she said, and I think I'm quoting this just about precisely, I must introduce you to my friend Anthony. Now, Anthony has been recognized as one of the most influential people in sales, leadership, and marketing by top sales world, open view partners, and global gurus. He's a national best-selling author with a new book that we'll discuss, writes for Success Magazine, Selling Power Magazine, and Forbes. He's an avid blogger, a professional speaker. He hosts a podcast called In the Arena, It's Good and I Subscribe, and is managing partner of two family-owned staffing businesses. He doesn't sleep. Message managers, I can report that when I reached out to Anthony, based upon our mutual friend's recommendation, I found him to be just as accessible and personable as his website and podcast promise. We're recording this on a Saturday morning where, Anthony, I suspect that uh, given all that, you've probably written a book chapter, recorded two videos, <laughs> done a blog post, walked the dogs, who knows what else. But Anthony Enarino, welcome to the Big Messaging Show. Thank you for having me. I did walk and feed the dogs, that's true. There is someone standing in the loft recording me on video right now, but I have not written a chapter of a book. So you're mostly right. And I did listen to your uh, intro here. And the next time I have a book and somebody has to go into the studio and read it out loud, you're so much better than I am. You're going to be the one that has to do that for me. (laughs) Happy to do it. My first commercially published book. So I'm not nearly on the cycle that you are yet, Anthony, but I think I'm going to do my own audio book. So, but I'm happy to to work on anything for you. May God have mercy on your soul. (laughs) It is so hard. It is so much harder than you think. And you wrote every word and you know how to read and still you go into the studio. I'll just recreate for you how it went for me. I said, vigilant. Wait, that's not right. Vigilant. And I read the sentence again. And then I'm like, I know how to say vigilant. And then I read the sentence again and said, vigilant. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why does that happen? It happens because you're recording and because every word is being captured. But you know how to pronounce the word, but for some reason it doesn't work in a studio. So now when uh, sometime in 2019, when I'm in that studio and I will try to be diligent about vigilant... <laughs> Or somehow not have that on my mind. It's a tough one. (laughs) It's a tough one. Anthony, you have a great and I'd say very broad, high-level view 
about the sales function and revenue growth, in addition to very practical stuff that you're working on all the time. And I'd like to begin by talking about the state of the sales function today, as well as how it's perceived. And this is not just business to business, complex selling, which is a lot of your universe today, but really for anyone who's involved in direct sales, business development, fundraising, anything really about growing the top line of the business. And I want to start with this question because recently I've been working with a client who they're trying to grow their sales staff and their revenue very quickly. They have a technical solution. And frankly, the CEO of this company doesn't have much regard for sales. I think he has a very unrealistic view about what processes are needed, what salespeople need in terms of their skills and their confidence and their tools and and that sort of thing. It's been a, a difficult disconnect to work on. So maybe that's a rare event. Maybe it's a bit of an outlier. Do you see major misconceptions these days that boards of directors or C-level executives have about sales and what salespeople ought to be doing these days? I do think that you hit on something that there is, in fact, some people who don't really understand the sales function. And it's going to be very difficult for an entrepreneur to scale and scale fast if they don't understand the value of the function. And there's a lot of smart people who have said a lot of smart things, but there might not be anybody smarter than Peter Drucker. And Peter Drucker said a couple things. First, he said, the reason a business exists is to create a customer, period. That's the reason a business exists. Your job is to go out and create customers. Okay, so how do we do that? Another thing that Drucker said is that business really has two major functions, innovation and marketing. That's what he believed. And I don't know that anyone has ever been able to argue the alternative there. So you innovate because you have to come up with something that can create greater value than what exists right now. And then you market it because your job is to create customers. To do that, you need, in many cases, people to have conversations with other people to explain the value of what it is that you've innovated or what it is that you've created. And when you don't have people that can go out into the world and explain the value and share with other people how they're going to get a better result, then you end up struggling. So I would tell you that the what I normally do with people that are like your entrepreneur in CEO is explain to them that you really have a choice to make. You can decide that I'm a business that sells a technical solution. So my job is to be really good at the technical solution. Or alternatively, you can decide that I'm a sales organization and I happen to sell this technical solution. But because I'm building a sales organization, I'm not only going to be able to sell this technical solution, I'm going to be able to sell lots and lots of other different things to this customer base I build over time and to continue to serve them and grow with them. And it is a certain mindset for somebody who's going to scale a business to understand my job is to grow the top and the bottom line. And to do that, I'm going to go out into the world and I'm going to sell. So what you are, if you have a business, if you're listening to this, what you are first and foremost, you are already a sales organization. Now you can try to deny that and you can say, well, I don't want to be a sales organization. I really want to be a really good technical group of people that can handle this technical challenge. You're going to have a very, very nice technical business that's very, very small because the way that a business grows is is by creating value and acquiring more customers. So you really have to get those two things in the right order. You mentioned the word mindset, and that's an important one. One of the things that I've noticed about Anthony's work is there's no gimmickry that I've seen. I don't believe that I've seen any post from you, Anthony, that's like 1,241 easy sales growth hacks. 
And so when I look back, your first book, I believe the first chapter of your first book was about discipline. And I think I've heard you tell the story that your publisher didn't much like that. So your view about starting with the right mindset when it comes to sales and growth, and what is it that you believe really needs to come first? Discipline was first. The publisher that actually published the book, Polio, loved the way that the book was laid out. And they understood the value of discipline and caring and competitiveness and resourcefulness and initiative. There wasn't a problem from their view. They thought it was a really good competency model. They understand what the book was. But the first publisher, as soon as he said, as soon as I read the self-discipline, I thought, why would you ever put that first? People hate discipline. And the truth of the matter is who you are matters more than what you do and what you sell. So you first have to be a person worth buying from. So that mindset is really, really important. And I've had a mindset shift about how I structured that in the book. To be honest with you, I said it's mindset plus skill set plus toolkits. So it's having the right set of beliefs and the right set of uh, ideas and the right set of core values. And then it's the skill sets. It's things like closing and prospecting and diagnosing and negotiation and all those things. And then it's the toolkit. So it's all the things that you have like a process and a methodology and the tools that you use. But somebody recently tweeted to me that the way that they perceived it was different. And as soon as I read what they tweeted, I realized I was wrong and that they were in fact correct. And I changed my mind. What they said is it's actually skill sets plus toolkits multiplied by mindset. The mindset is a multiplier and it is. And here's how I can tell you this. There are some people who have less skills and less tools, but their mindset is so strong that they over-index on every single result metric that you can look at. They're better at it because of what they believe and how they behave and their character traits and how they approach things, even though they may be under-resourced when it comes to skills and when it comes to tools. And so that ends up being the real multiplier. Two people with the same skills and same tools can produce very, very different results. And it comes to your belief structure. So it is things like discipline and optimism and initiative and accountability. All of those things count for so much. And recently, I think what I've been trying to share with people is there's some things like leadership, where if you go out and search for the attributes for a leader, you're going to find 64 million things. And if you look at at what happens in sales, all these things, if you lack them, all of these deficiencies that you might have, uh, they're magnified because you're trying to have somebody say, yes, I want to bring you in as a business partner. So if you're not disciplined and you don't follow up or you're pessimistic or cynical, or you don't care about other people, you're self-oriented, they tend to be so magnified that they're an inhibitor for people being able to say yes and buy something from you. So I believe everything starts with the mindset and that is really, truly the multiplier. The first book is really about making sure people understand that there are places where each of us are deficient and there are things that we could do to get better. And what I tried to do with that book is, is give people a foundation to be a modern B2B salesperson with the right mindset and character traits and the skill sets to go with it. And given that there are a lot of people listening here who are not in in B2B sales, but it sounds like the lessons are pretty broadly applied. You write about sales, of course, but you also write about leadership and coaching, customer intimacy, productivity. You have eBooks around those those sorts of topics. So what are the things that entrepreneur, a, a professional services person, managers in a company who are not in the sales organization, people running not for profits, what are the kinds of things that they can learn from the people who are very best at sales? to help them in the roles that they have in their own professional lives. It matters how you define the word sales. So what we tend to think of is a commercial transaction. I give you this product or service, you give me money. But the truth of the matter is it's really about an exchange of value. So when you say I'm a not-for-profit, the exchange of value is pretty easy to 
figure out. I had my son's college, Denison University, call and ask me for money. And I told them, I'm not the one that gives you money. My wife gives you money and you should call and ask her for the money because she's <laughs> going to say yes right away and I'm busy right now. But what they're saying is you get to contribute to us helping other kids go to school and get this education. So you're making a contribution to helping us do that. So you get the ability to feel good about contributing and helping others. And we get the money we need to help somebody else. That is purely sales. There's no doubt that that's what it is. And if you go to someone, Jim, and you say, I want you to make this change. And here's why it's in your best interest. And here's all the things that you're going to get from making this change. You are for certain selling. Now, you may not have a process that looks like a B2B or a complex sales process, but there are in fact things that we know. And when you ask somebody for value, you have to trade them something of equal or greater value for what they have. So when you look at a nonprofit who's asking people for money, the value that they get out of that money is something that's not tangible, but it is something that's important to people. Am I contributing? Am I helping in the causes that I care about? It's still all sales. So no matter what role you're in, I would tell you the universal skill set for helping people change and get better results. If you wanted to call it something, you would call it sales because it means I'm going to help you find a reason to change, figure out how to change and then help you do that. And that's really what salespeople do. Despite all the stereotypes that we're all still Glenn, Gary, Glenn, Boras, and coffee is for closers and that kind of stuff, it's not true. It, that stereotype hasn't been true for probably 30 years for the most part. But ultimately, it's about helping other people get a result they can't get without you. And if that's what you try to do, then you're absolutely in sales. A lot of people that I come across kind of get that. They don't feel comfortable. Again, a lot of it's that negative stereotype. The Herb Tarlick from WKRP in Cincinnati comes to mind as well of being salesy. And I look at the way that you help clients, the way a lot of us uh, these days try to grow our businesses and there's quite the mix. There is cold outreach. There is kind of warm outreach, email campaigns, a lot of content marketing. You're a very active content marketer yourself. I mean, you write a lot of things and podcasts, et cetera, but you also have a very strong point of view about what you see working these days about power picking up the phone and reaching out that way, phone outreach, particularly in comparison to email. So what is it that you're seeing these days in terms of how these elements work together and what works best to help people really be proactive about this? I'm glad you called me a content marketer and not a social seller. <laughs> so that is a distinction that is worth talking about for just a minute. So yes. for the last maybe eight or nine years, up until just recently, like this year, I think we definitely, the nail is in the coffin of social selling and it didn't work. And so people want to believe that if I'm out on LinkedIn and I'm sharing content and I'm tweeting to people, I'm going to get this massive level of engagement and people are going to say, wow, I want to talk to you. And it hasn't turned out to be true for most companies. And it's because the social tools lend themselves to what I would say is above the funnel. So it's for nurturing the relationship. So I am indeed a content marketer. I think the last time I looked at the blog, there's maybe 3,500 individual posts. That includes the YouTube videos that have been put up there in the podcast. So I have a lot of content out working in the world because I am in fact a content marketer. But I don't sit on social media and tweet back and forth with people who are prospective clients trying to get them to engage in a conversation with me. So what I will tell you is right now, the single best attribute or the single best tool you have rather for prospecting and cold outreach is the telephone. 
And I just put up a post last week, I think you were referring to that, from the sponsors of the Outbound Conference, Outreach.io. And we looked at a sequence run against 20,000 people. And the first email that went out to 4,700 and some number of people, 15 people engaged in a conversation with the company out of 4,715 is a very small number. But then that same group called those people. They called those very same people, the same 4,700, and they had 1,000 people engage with them. And it's a very, very different thing because you have a human being talking to another human being. And when we send an email, we're really not talking to another human being. It feels like spam. It looks like it's more self-oriented. Let me tell you about us. Here's what we're thinking. Email is still a critical tool and the social tools are, but I think it matters how you think of them. Social media is really good for content marketing. So above the funnel kind of let me shape your thinking. Let me help you understand why you should change. Let me share with you all of the issues that should be impacting your business or soon will be perfect for that. Tweeting someone trying to get an appointment or spamming them on LinkedIn, which seems to be the strategy du jour. You know, they connect with you and within four seconds, you've got a long documented pitch with a little calendar link saying, schedule with me. And Anthony, I didn't know until that moment that I needed more SEO work out of uh, overseas provider. <laughs> yeah, no, you didn't know. How would you know that? Or that you needed <laughs> a mobile app developed or in the calendar link is sort of saying, you should reach out to me. Well, because you pitched me your product. So in my world, we would call that level one value. The product is the lowest level of value you can create. And you're a commodity. And the reason that this doesn't work for them is because it's not a great strategy. It's not about me. It's about them. And it's not helpful. And I think just enough people say yes to conversations that they think this is a viable strategy, but their time would be better spent targeting people who really buy what they sell. And the best thing that you can do right now is target your dream clients, figure out what the attributes are of the people that you create the greatest value for and then spend time calling them first. Follow that call up with an email. Follow that email up with content, real content that would help them and benefit them whether they ever buy from you or not and take time to nurture the relationship so that when anything happens and there's some chance that you can go in and displace your competitor or create a new opportunity, you've already done the work to shape their mind and they understand how you think about the world and you've explained how they should think about it and that puts you in the position to win business. So that's what's working right now and people really need to do more of it. And again, we're back to self-discipline. You can try to find the easy way, but the easy way tends to be the hard way and the hard way tends to be the easy way. Interesting. And there's a lot in what you were talking about there in terms of initiating the conversation. And something that I've found often is it relates to preparation as well. And sometimes people who have been in sales or business development or just running a business or running a team for some period of time get pretty comfortable in what they know, what they think they know, and what they assume about their clients or customers. And you had mentioned spending some time finding out what your prototypically best customer your ideal customer would look like and why it would be an interesting conversation for them. So Anthony, I wonder, I just see people shortcutting the preparation oftentimes. Just they've kind of gotten in, again, in kind of a comfortable space. And even if they're doing that outreach, they will tend to talk more about their product and tend to talk about things that may not be that germane to that prototypically good customer. So what do you find to be the right level and the right types of things in preparation for those calls for that outreach, for someone who's going to an industry event or going into a business review meeting, those important conversations, what are the things that people really ought to be preparing for? And are there some typical gaps that you see in how people do it? There's a lot of gaps. I would tell you to make a phone call, what I would suggest is what I would call minimum viable research. 
I mean, I don't need to know where you went to college. I don't need to know your last seven jobs. I don't need to read your last seven years of annual reports for your company and your chairman's letter. I don't need to do that kind of prep to make a phone call. Unless, of course, I'm wrong and you have 11 people that you're calling on and you need to know that level of detail for all 11 of them. For most of us, though, we need to have enough understanding about who people are and what they do and what their role is and the kind of things that they probably care about. So we probably need to do enough to know that and we need to have a theory. After you get the appointment, though, then you need to do deeper work and you have to get a deep understanding of who is this company? What's going on in their world? What are they likely to be challenged with? What are they likely to be working on? And you have to develop a more, I would say, specific theory of in their industry and where they are and where they seem to be placed in their category. What are they likely struggling with and how do I go in and create value for them? And so we'll talk about preparation here for just a minute. I don't know why a salesperson doesn't prepare for a sales call. And when you get the gift of someone else's time, so you pursued your dream client, it took you seven months to get a meeting with them. And then your best guess is I'm going to go in and wing it. And I'm going to show them the slide deck that tells you about my company's long history starting back in 1942, something of which they have zero concern. And then you say, let me share with you our product and service offering, something that they're already buying from someone else. And then you say, let me show you these logos that we've won from big companies, something that sometimes makes them feel like, well, we probably aren't going to be important enough for you. And what does that have to do with me? And then we ask the question, so tell me what's keeping you up at night or where your challenges are. That is not value creation on the customer side. So you have to be prepared to come in and say, Jim, in your world, some of the things that we're tracking and some of the trends that we're looking are, we're looking at trends about the number of baby boomers that are retiring right now. It turns out that there's 4.3 million retiring a year. And we're trying to replace them with people that look like they have a lumberjack beard and they look like a samurai because they got a top knot of some kind on their head. And we have to figure out how to skill these people up. So that's one of the things that we're challenged with. Now, if that's the world that they live in and you're talking to that, then you've already let them know, look, I already understand your world. I already understand some of the challenges you're facing. And instead of what's keeping you up at night, it's here's what's keeping all of us up at night. And here's our best view about this and some ideas about what we could do together and how we're helping people deal with these and some of our beliefs around it. Now you're into an interesting conversation. They're like, okay, so wait, now you're an interesting person. You have thoughts and opinions and ideas and you're doing work in these particular areas. What do you think about this? And then they start sharing with you things that are going on in their mind. But to show up, you have to be prepared. And if somebody says, I'm going to give you an hour, what you have to recognize is that's a test. Are you a value creator? Are you somebody I want on my team? Do you have the ideas? Do you have the ability to come onto my team and help drive the change that we need to make here forward? Or are you just another commodity? In which case, I'll just give you to purchasing and I'll get rid of you. So that's really the reason that preparation is so important. You get very, very few chances to make the impression that you want to make on a prospective client. And if you're buttoned up and you've done the work, even if your theory is wrong, it turns out somebody just told me this, even if your theory is wrong, they correct you on the theory and then they still start asking you questions. Message managers, this is a really important point. I want to pause here on this just for a moment. So there, I look at uh, the types of valuable conversations are potentially valuable conversations. On the one, as Anthony was talking about, you can go in and ask people what their pain points are, what keeps them up at night. And that means that you're frankly, look. it looks like you're lazy and you're putting the work on that other person. On the other end of the spectrum, it can be bad as well. If you go in and go, I know exactly what you need. I know exactly what you uh, have going on. And our first reaction, Anthony, as human beings is, you don't know me. You don't know exactly about that. I'm going to come up with all the ways you're wrong. But if you go in with your, as you 
you say, your theory or your working hypothesis and say, these are patterns that I'm seeing, which have certain implications as well. You're allowing some room. On the one hand, you have shown yourself to have some expertise and you've done your homework, but you're also allowing a little bit of space there for the other person to say, yeah, Anthony, we are seeing some of that in terms of retirements and the like, but our situation is a little bit different. Let me tell you about that. So it seems that going in there, as you say, with the working hypothesis that's based on some preparation and based upon the things that you know from the outside is going to be the most fruitful conversation. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you have to help people protect their ego. So for the last, I don't know, 10 years since Challenger Sale came out, people are like, I want people out challenging people with our insights. And I mean, there's a way to do it. So depending on who the person is, I mean, you, if you go in and you say, look, we're tracking these things. And somebody did this to uh, one of my friends. They came in and said, look, if you're not doing these things, what you're doing is wrong. And my friend has a jet. I mean, he owns his own plane. So he thinks he's doing fairly well having a private jet. Financially, certainly he's doing well. And <laughs> lives indoors, had, has regular meals, all of that. Yeah. He's got a good family. And it, so he thinks that he's doing pretty well. And so this person sort of overshot the mark on the challenge. If you instead were to come in and say, you know, we have this view of this, but you might have a different view. So I'd like to share these ideas with you. And then maybe you can tell us how they're tracking in your world, if they are at all. And what might be interesting here is to understand how you're viewing this. And if you are having these challenges, what kind of choices you're making around it, maybe we can share some ideas if they would be valuable for you. And now I'm not saying, look, you're too dumb to know this, even though you're financially more successful than all but maybe a half a percent of the U.S. population. And I'd like you to help shape my thinking about this. So I want to share these with you and I want to get your view of it. Okay, well, now... Since I've respected the fact that you know things, you're running a very, very large business, I can have a different level of engagement. So it also matters. We're dealing with human beings here. And if I come in and tell you everything that you know is wrong, and you've been in your industry for 30 years, and I just joined my company this particular year and haven't been in business all that very long, you're in a much, much better position to be the student as well as the teacher instead of just coming in and thinking you know things. So from a marketing perspective, for a long time, we've been arming people with insight. I would say for the last 10 years, we've been trying to do that. But it very much matters what your approach is. You're trying to influence people to look at something through a certain lens. And the way that you do that matters as much as what the insight is. I can imagine a number of people would be hearing this and they say, I get it. I understand it at a gut level, but wow, it's such a busy world. And there are only so many hours in a day. And I have, whether it's a sales quota or even outside the sales organization. So many things I'm trying to do here. Now, Anthony, I talk a lot about and write a lot about productivity and time allocation. And just in your recent history, three books in three years, is that correct? Three books in three years. Right. Daily blog, newsletter, created a conference, host a podcast, you run businesses, wife, three children, two dogs and a cat. I may have left some things out, that's a lot to juggle. So what have you found over time that enables you to manage all of these things effectively, give the people in your life that be at home or on the job the time that they need, not drive yourself too crazy? And it comes to time allocation, what's working for you in things that others might be able to draw upon? We built a planner called the Outcomes Planner, and we call it the B2B Sales Toolkit. And it's a lot of the methodologies that I developed over the years and being what I would call super productive 
productive. And there's really only one major rule for productivity, and that is do what's most important to completion. That's really what it boils down to. So there's lots of things like GTD, which I love, and that's keeping the list of everything so you capture everything. But really, it's a values decision. So you're really making a values decision. Is this more important than that? And then you have to ask yourself an honest question. You have to say, is what's in my inbox right now more important than the project that I should be working on? Or is this work right now more important than the time I should be spending with my family? You know, so you have to decide what's most important and then you have to put it on the calendar. And so one of the things that we teach is a 90-minute blocks. And we try to get people to three 90-minute blocks a day. My first 90-minute block starts at 9 or 5 a.m. And the reason I start at 5 a.m. is because nobody wants your time at 5 a.m. So if you have from 5 to 6.30 to do whatever you consider to be most important, you're going to get a, a very, very large amount of work done. And what most people tell us when they do this process is, uh, I only got one 90-minute block done, but I got more work done in that 90 minutes than I get done in most days because we cause them to remove all the distractions to decide what's most important and then do it. And immediately they start to recognize the value of doing what's most important first and making sure there's time on their calendar to do it. So these are not secrets you know, that people don't know. We know that focus helps you produce better results. We know deciding what's most important and doing that work works, but most of us don't decide what we want and we don't look at it that way. Last week in the Sunday newsletter, I wrote about a couple, an idea that really bothers me. And whenever I'm bothered by an idea, that's the idea I run towards. So one of the ideas that I'm running towards right now is that I should have free days where I don't do any work. That to me is blasphemy. I mean, it's heresy. How, how would you not work on a day that ends in Y? And I work Christmas. I work Thanksgiving. I love working. If I'm not working, I'm with my family. That's the two things that are the primary drivers for me. But because I didn't like the idea, I thought there must be value in it because other, so many other people are finding value in that. I'll look at it. But the idea that I wrote about in the newsletter, I've read twice and I hate the idea. But because I hated it, I said I should probably try it. And I took all of the apps off of my phone. I took off Twitter. I took off Instagram. I took off Facebook. I took off YouTube and I took off mail. So now my phone is essentially just a phone again. And it is a an internet browser. So if I have to look at something, I can go look at it. But all the social apps are now on a second phone. So for me to look at anything outside of what's on your phone in a state that I would say, you know, more like when it came out of the box, I have to go to my bag, I have to unzip the back of it, and I have to pull out the second phone. So I'm not saying don't use social media. I'm not saying don't spend time there, but be intentional about it. Get rid of the distractions and do the work that you're supposed to do. So for me to go decide, I'm going to go take a look at Twitter right now. I'm going to share something over there. I'm going to share something on Instagram. I literally have to change gears. After your 90-minute blocks, if you decide you're going to get in your inbox and live there for 30 minutes or 45 minutes or whatever, you want to be in reactive mode, be in reactive mode. But for most of us, if you really, really want to do great work and you really want to be super productive, you've got to decide what you want. You've got to build the disciplines around it. You have to get it onto the calendar. And then you just have to do what I would call ruthless prioritization. Ruthless. This has to be more important than that. And that means I have to say no to a lot of things. And Jim, the reason that we're doing a podcast on a Saturday morning is because I reserve the time in my work week for businesses and clients and the most important things that I have to do from a business perspective. And as much as I love doing podcasts, as much as I love recording them, I put them at time where no one else wants my time and attention so that I can reserve that time for other things. And that really is the key to being super productive. You just have to decide what you want, block the time, and then do the work until it's complete. 
That's wonderful. And I was thinking through, you did an interview on your podcast not long ago with Jeffrey Gidmer. Yes. And he is, for those who don't know him, legendary and has been for a few decades now in terms of a speaker, consultant, writer, going down the list. He's among the most productive and successful people in that world ever. And as I recall, Jeffrey was talking about how even he, he had one of these, uh, I think, wordscapes or one of these uh, kind of word puzzle things on his phone. Yeah. And he was falling into the trap of, you know, every now and then he'd just have a couple of minutes and he he's kind of a highly, <laughs> very active kind of guy. You just kind of get on there and play with this for a while to the extent that his family was even saying, hey, why don't you just stop doing that? So it just goes to show that even the most productive people, those devices in our calendars, all of that can be a real downward drag. This is maybe outside of the television the first thing of its kind for most of us, that instead of us controlling the tool, the tool controls us. Because if you just go to dinner with a group of people and watch how the phone makes the person reach over, pick it up and look at it, even though there's been nothing that should have prompted them to do that. There wasn't a notification at all. It didn't ring. There was no beep, nothing flashed, but yet they have to pick it up and look at it. So you actually now are a slave to a little tiny box, what I would call the small screen of infinite distractions. It now has too much power over people. So when I read the idea about having two devices, one that I actually will use for social, what happens is your intentions about what you're doing change. So when there is no distraction for me to pick up and look at on the phone anymore, now it's lost its power over me. If I actually want to go do work on social or look at social, and I'm really a content creator, I'm not so much of a content consumer, I have to actually switch phones to do that. So I think that the distraction is a big challenge for most people right now because there's just so much to distract us. You've given me a great idea about this and the, the two devices and taking that draw, the, the dopamine hit out of just the daily cycle there. Anthony, I would like to talk a little bit about your new book. Um, you, uh, you have one called Eat Their Lunch. Last thing an author wants to talk about is his new book, Jim. I mean, I there's know. If I can drag this out of you. Yeah, you'll have to drag it out of me for sure. So you written a previous book and, and you've, uh, like you have a sense of humor about it. Uh, you wrote a book previously called The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need. Right. Which when we think it's a drop the mic moment. But as it turns out, there are lots of different selling situations and business development situations. Here, you turn your focus toward, you might call it competitive selling. You probably have a better term for it. So if you could talk a bit about why you felt it was important to address that and what's the approach you're taking in the book? Apparently, the only sales guide you'll ever need was a drop the mic moment. And then the lost art of closing was a pick the mic back up moment, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. And then drop the mic moment and pick it back up again for each their lunch. Eat their lunch is something we call a competitive displacement. And that means we're stealing customers away from our competitors. And the reason it's so important right now is I think we've lost the competitiveness in sales. And I think that we've lost the idea that what we're doing is going out and trying to greater value than anyone else. And that's the root of competition. So, so much of the way that people think about competition is I have to focus on my competitor and they always go in and sell price or they try these dirty tricks like lying about what they can do or lying about what we do and all these other things. The truth of the matter is you can't do anything about your competitor. They're going to do whatever they do. And if you went to them and you said nicely, please stop selling at the lowest price. You know that you're not profitable enough doing it this way and you're starting to destroy the market. They're going to say, 
I'm going to do what I do. You're not going to stop me from pursuing my strategy. And the fact of the matter is, if we all agreed on pricing, it would be collusion and a lot of people will go to jail. You can't do anything about that. So what can you do? You can become a greater value creator. You can sharpen the lens that you help your clients look through and capture greater mindshare. When you capture greater mindshare, you can get meetings with people at higher levels about what real change looks like. And you can start to build the case that, hey, your future looks better with me than it looks like with the people that you're working with now. And the idea for me, I would call the red ocean strategy. There's a book called the blue ocean strategy. And the blue ocean strategy is create something like Uber or Netflix or Airbnb where you have no competition. Well, that would be great. But if there's 18 million salespeople in America, I would say none of the 18 million live in that particular part of the ocean. We live in the red part of the ocean that is bloody because it's so competitive and it's so fierce and things have been so commoditized that there's only one way that you survive there. And that is to go out and become a greater value creator. And so everything that I've written so far, Jim, has been written for B2B sales organizations, but it's been written to the individual. And the individual now has to understand you are the largest part of the value proposition. When you show up, you can't lean on your company's storied history. You can't lean on your products and services. You can't lean on the logos that your company's captured. That person sitting there is making a decision. Are you going to create greater value than what I have now? And is it worth changing what I'm doing to have that? Are there reasons for me to change? And so this is literally the first playbook for how to execute this process. Outstanding. Cannot wait to get my hands on that. For everyone, message managers, Anthony Enarino is a generous resource. There's a lot of free stuff that he has on his website and through the podcast, etc. So let me open the door in much the same way, Anthony, as I was somehow able to drag some information about your new book out of you. Could you possibly let our listeners know where they can find out more about you and how you work with clients and all those resources you offer? Sure. The best place to find me is thesalesblog.com. And that's the primary hub for all of the content that I create. All the YouTube stuff tends to go through there. But you can also find me on all the social channels. So if you go to the salesblog.com, you'll see a little follow button and you can follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter or Instagram or wherever it makes sense. Anthony Enarino, thank you so much for uh, spending some time on a morning, a busy morning and joining us on the Manager Message Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. If you're enjoying the podcast, then make sure to join our growing list of subscribers so you don't miss an episode. And please take a short moment to rate and review. Frankly, the five stars are the only ones that matter. That helps more professionals learn about the podcast. And I'd appreciate it if you would share with any friends or colleagues that you think would get value from it as well. For more insights you can use in your business, I offer the Message Manager Memo. It's a free weekly email with practical tips. It's a short read that I believe you'll enjoy having. You can sign up at jimcarr.com. That's J-I-M-K-A-R-R-H.com. If you have ideas for the podcast or the message manager memo or anything else, or if you'd like to talk about my speaking to your organization or perhaps working with your team, then you can email me directly at jim at jimcarr.com. Until next time, thank you, message managers. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcarr.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.